0: everyone uh welcome to manufacturing hub i'm dave this guy over here i think i've got the, the nope this guy over here is uh is is Vlad. uh this is episode 95 we're talking all about manufacturing hub uh predictions of what 2023 and beyond is going to be uh Vlad, we, we don't have a guest to go ask for some introductions so this is slightly different than normal what do you guys uh or what are you thinking
1: yeah, well, first of all, I guess I did want to make the introduction this time. We'll we'll skip that and maybe give me another shot next month. That being said, as you've mentioned, we're trying different things. I think, you know, in the conversations, we certainly get a lot of information out of our guests. Me and Dave wanted to discuss some of these topics a little bit between ourselves. So the idea here is to give a little bit of a recap, but also kind of give our thoughts on the trends that we're seeing in 2023 discuss some of the initiatives that we're working on and maybe seeing with some of our end users and ultimately answer any questions. We're already seeing a couple of hellos from Rich uh, and Juan. And so if you're in the chat on LinkedIn or on YouTube, we are streaming to both. Make sure to uh, leave us a comment, ask any questions you would like. We're probably going to focus more on the general industry trends today. Uh, the idea isn't necessarily to dive into any technical topics that being said Dave if I can maybe kick us off so the first episode or the first conversation around table we had with uh, Jordan Humphreys and Drew Horsley the conversation was around careers around you know maybe automation jobs that are growing that are changing uh what are your thoughts first and foremost I want to say on the industry going into 2023 you think that anything is going to change or we're going to see more demand for automation professionals and anybody else in uh, manufacturing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I, I was happy and heartened to kind of uh, kick off the year with, with Jordan and Drew. I feel like they gave us some really positive outlooks. So I think m- much of their outlooks is like there's going to continue to be demand. Uh, we had this conversation a number of different times when we talked about the workforce, specifically being that there are not nearly enough people in the workforce to meet the demand of the automation jobs that we are going to have. And and honestly, I I hope that continues to, uh, I hope that that continues to ring true. And if that continues to ring true, I hope that we find the opportunity uh, to to make sure everyone gets paid, right? So uh, talking about workforce, workforce development, a couple of days ago, we had Nikki and Allian from Automation Ladies, and they made a really interesting point and comment about wages um, and that there are a number of groups not getting paid well enough, and especially people that have to travel significantly are not getting paid well enough. So I, I hope that we come to some sort of normalization, uh, maybe on, on the combination of both how we pay and compensate people uh, for their time, but, but also kind of the extreme travels uh, that many, especially systems integrators face. I will say going back to, to the initial point and the question of kind of what are my predictions, I think that there is going to be a lot of demand for automation because we are struggling to cr- to have the the demand right. We're struggling to put people into the workforce for operations roles, and because we're putting people, struggling to put and I suppose also keep people. In the workforce in in operations roles folks working on the floor, we, we need more automation and then in addition to that we've got a lot of technical debt, uh, you know lots of PLC PLC fives in most uh, facilities that I've worked at, and then every once in a while I come across to PLC 2 Uh, yeah, every once in a while I come across a PLC two or or thereabouts. Um, and I mean, those have scared us. We've had lots of conversations on how do we convince people to upgrade them. And I think at the end of the day, things just need to break and we need to take significant downtime before we're going to start upgrading those. And I, I'm not hoping extreme downtime on anyone, but I am saying every day, hour year that passes, we are getting closer and closer to, Hey, we have got to go pay, that, that tech debt of not having upgraded um, ourselves. So I would project that while the market may not be as red hot for everyone in automation as it has been the last few years, I imagine that there will still be ample opportunities and you and I will go on LinkedIn and see lots of people continue to change jobs over the every week, every month, and at least over the course of the next 12 months. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Vlad?
1: Well, I guess the question I wanted to ask you as a follow-up on that, Dave, and my thought also is, uh, number one, I'm, I'm having a lot of conversations with engineering managers who are trying to fill these roles, and the problem is twofold, right? So the first problem is, number one, is finding the right people, but I think it's two people who have been in the education space, in university or college, learning these platforms, and I, I think it's important to recognize that the nature of them is so hands-on, And with uh, the pandemic, a lot of it transitioned to online learning. And I could certainly tell you that it cannot fill all those gaps through online learning alone, right? And so Mm -hmm. they're asking, um, I want to say like the industry, what's going to be the fix to having like two or three years of those people just having a primarily online experience and having Mm -hmm. a lack of very hands-on. So I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is we're seeing even fewer people coming up with that you know, troubleshooting experience that maybe like robotics maintenance experience, just because everything sort of transitioned online and more and more of these programs are offering like a purely um, online experience. They don't have the skills I think that the manufacturers are looking for. But at the same time, I would say that they're not always willing to fill in those gaps. So I'm trying to maybe see if you had some thoughts. And, And my thought is, I think that simulation is getting better, right? And I think there's multiple tools. And I mentioned robotics because that's a, a space we're in on the solo side, but the same goes for PLC and automation. But I think that, I guess with the pandemic, we're seeing a lack of that hands-on training. And and it's not mm-hmm. only maybe finding the people, but also finding the people that can do the job that we're looking for them to do, if that makes sense. So what are your thoughts maybe on, on that?
0: Absolutely. So I would say, kind of first and foremost, I, I think people learn in different ways, right? So some people are able to go watch a YouTube video and then just go do the thing. And I think many of us have gone and said, hey, how do I change the headlights in X vehicle? And then I can go change the headlights with, I don't know, $20 worth of headlight bulbs and hopefully tools that I've got lying around the house, as opposed to paying, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars in the dealership to go have the headlight bulbs changed. Uh, but some people can't right? So some people are very much, we've got to go do it ourselves, or it makes more sense for it, or I don't understand how to learn online. Mm -hmm. For me, a lot of the best experience I had was in tech school and just going in the repetition of doing the thing over and over and over again. I think that as we look at the need to create a group of people who have good troubleshooting skills, that only comes from time and experience, right? It's the time, it's the experience and it's the some amount, it's, it's aptitude, right? There are just some people who are not good troubleshooters. There are other people that are really good natural troubleshooters. You can certainly train on both sides of that, but it is just kind of the, the repetition over and over again. I think it'll be, intra, I guess, on the hopeful side, I hope that there is the opportunity to bring people whom, uh, you know, had some of that online learning, that the online l- learning experience was good for them and take them into courses like Solus PLC or, or, or take them into a bunch of free courses so that people can go learn how to program PLCs and go do other things and be able to go leverage that from that point and that we can find some opportunity with that. I think kind of beyond that very short term of of the answer of we're going to struggle mightily and continue to struggle mightily, I think most end users need to create some sort of uh, apprenticeship program. Um, I, I think it's probably beyond an internship program, right? Like I think we need people who can go to some amount of tech school or people who are interested in doing this and hey, we commit to going and spending, you know, five hours, 10 hours a week training them. And then they're going to spend five or 10 hours a week going and, and learning and following people and doing hands-on things. And then beyond that, I think that there is, th- there's going to be a need of, we, we just need repetition over and over again. So while it would be great if I had like the the golden bullet, that we could go solve all these problems in the immediacy i think the only potential solve of these problems is find ways not to let people retire from these jobs while we are actively bringing people to, to backfill these positions but in my experience most of the time large companies don't have functionality the ability to backfill until someone says hey i'm going to retire and puts in the paperwork or, or one of those things so that they don't have the extra slot to be able to go bring people on in order to train. So I think functionally, we're going to have to change how we do a lot of these. If there's the actual hope to succeed, uh, what what I see realistically are people are going to continue to to steal maintenance and engineering and operations and other people from the facility down the road. And then one, the, that the first facility starts paying five or $10 more 50 cents more an hour, they're going to go attract all of the people
1: back. I would agree, Dave. Uh, We have some interesting comments on the the LinkedIn side. So Doug uh, mentions, I see the automation industry coming from the same hurdles and changes we saw 10 plus years ago when professional project managers were coming about. Eventually, we might have automation PMP test. Uh, tests. So the market is there. Automation won't go away anytime soon. However, the issue is enterprise companies and consumers not being digital savvy and having limited digital literacy. I think it's an interesting point, right? So I know that you uh, make fun of my comments about certifications every now and then, but I think mm-hmm. that you know if we parallel to the software, the cloud industry, AWS has done a tremendous job, in my opinion, in standardizing the knowledge base and also making sure that on the Flip side, the certification is very recognized, and you understand what that person to some degree knows, right? And I understand there's outliers. There's going to be people who take sort of like the test bank approach, and they've just memorized a bunch of answers to predefined questions. And but I think maybe eliminating that side of things, you really know what you're getting from an individual. And I think our industry is certainly hopefully going to adopt that kind of a scheme. But maybe not to dwell on. Um, on jobs and kind of the career aspects more, because I know we can, uh, we can have a one-hour conversation just on that. I do want to move us along. So the second conversation mm-hmm. this month we had was with Sean Dotson, and so he talked a lot about his predictions. He talked a lot about, uh, from my notes, about no-code, low-code applications, mm-hmm. how that's going to change the industry. Uh, so what are your thoughts on the conversation we had with Sean?
0: I, I, I like the conversation that we had with Sean. I thought it was really interesting. I like the robotics portions of it. Um, anyone who has listened to this show for, for any period of time knows that I am very interested in the robotics uh, applications wise. I love robotics going in designing and actually building the robotic cells. It is not in my forte. So I always love being able to have conversations with folks uh, like Sean. There's some of my favorite conversations. Uh, uh, There's some of my favorite conversations I think that robotics in general, we will continue to see the rise of those. And generally speaking, I imagine that we will continue to deploy virtually every robotic arm and every robotic cell that can be built, at least over the course of the next 12 months. Uh, Talking about low and no code, I, I guess... On that side, I think that there's certainly opportunity for low and no code, right? Um, I think that there's opportunity to make what we do simpler. I think that we absolutely should make that what we do on the engineering and automation and control side easier. Uh, at some point, we, it's it feels like some applications are hard just to make the barrier of entry very high and to maybe protect people's jobs or... The, the applications are hard because it was parallel, like ladder logic is generally parallel to, to relays and timers. And so we built our first series of coding uh, based upon that. And it just is still hard because, because that is the way that we've always done it. So I think low and no code opportunities are really good opportunities. I guess in my experience looking at low and no code, it's really good for groups who have already been doing some of that work. So if it's a systems integrator, if it's a service provider who is, let's say deploying an in, in MES, right? I think there are a number of, of MES low and no code opportunity options out there. So if we've got the ability to go deploy an MES and we can do it in, in plain text and we can go drag and drop widgets and other things like that, I think that that makes a lot of sense. What I have seen very little success is, is the end user going and purchasing it and then trying to carve out 20 people's time in order to actually go create the application internally and then go deploy. Uh, On on my side, I see most of those issues becoming, I see most of those issues becoming, um, we already don't have enough time to do the work we're struggling and already need this tool. How am I supposed to go find six months out of my year? So how am I supposed to go find a 1,000 hours this year to go build the tool internally? And so I, I see a lot of struggle with that. But I feel like Sean and I were very aligned on that topic. And I'm interested to see how we can use those tools. My thought for, I don't know, longer than you and I have known each other, Vlad, is that we need to be very like quick to deployment is important. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be perfect. There is very little intellectual property that exists uh, from, from widget to widget. And 80 to 95% of every application is is very similar when you look at it in the MES space, right? So tags will be different. Uh, th- things like that will be different. Where and how we're pulling the information might be slightly different if we're using OPC, UA, DA, MQTT, any sort of these, things like th- there might be some differences. But how we need to see the the KPIs on the dashboard are are basically all going to be the same. So anything that we can do to create that IP in order to to deliver this in weeks as opposed to months or years is important. And while I feel like Sean was a little bit more uh, on the the low no-code bandwagon than has been my experience, I hope that more people are able to take solutions like that and drive them into quick-to-value results.
1: Good. Yeah, I would agree with uh, with many of those points. Uh, Dave, we skipped over a comment uh, that was left in chat. I guess there's just so many conversations coming up and people are responding to each other. So I do want to go back to this before maybe I give my thoughts on the Sean conversation. So yep. the, the point was made is what about the, the fact that the industry is not respecting for the knowledge and experience, especially monitoring most people have years of experience in other roles and it feels like that knowledge is useless to employers when it shouldn't be. And there was an answer follow-up to that, but ultimately the conversation and maybe the question, if I can rephrase that for you, mm-hmm. is what are you seeing in terms of more experienced hires? Are you seeing you know, employers or end users looking to fill positions where somebody of like 10 plus years is, is trying to come in? And what is the job market looking like for them? Are they leaving automation for one reason or another? Are they looking for other opportunities? Are you seeing a lot of these sort of like longer term uh, or more experienced hires being brought on board in the manufacturing space?
0: Yeah, I think that when we look at most kind of mid-career and above roles, we see lots of people who have that experience, right? Um, So so, so typically I see most like engineering managers, most operations, productions, managers, certainly all plant kind of and above managers. Generally, they're they're all in that probably 10 years plus experience level. Um, And I think that experience is good, right? There are certain things that we can train for, but there are certain things that you just need to have gone through it in order to understand the way that you either should or shouldn't do it. At times, learning the, hey, to have done it this way lesson is more valuable than getting it right on the first time. Um so so I, I certainly see a lot of those. I see a, a fair amount of that movement wise. Um, some of that kind of vertically within organizations, some of that from facility to facility within organizations. And then uh, beyond that, I mean most senior systems integration folks have have a fair amount of experience. Uh, but but talking about that experience, right? So, so kind of one of the key frustration points I hear, year or yeah, kind of year after year. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase this uh, for four uh, for answers that will be fairly obvious in, in a moment. is basically, hey, you know, I've got a bunch of experience at three or four different companies and I've come to insert large manufacturer here. And man, they've always done it the same way they have and I've seen so many things and they just want to continue to do it the same way they have and it's like pulling rope. Uh, I'm sorry. It's like pushing rope in order to, in order to uh, go through the process of of changing things. And so, while I think that that having experience is very valuable, I think that it's also very important to realize that sometimes that that experience. It doesn't lead to immediate, immediately actionable results, right? Sometimes that experience is going to turn around and we're going to have to, you, you know, unless I own this particular vertical, sometimes we have the process of convincing people internally, this is, this is what and how everything is going to look.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, like to play devil's advocate, I've certainly seen instances where, again, on the management side, uh, the company was a little bit ambitious with getting, I want to say, very inexperienced people into roles that, in my eyes, required a lot of experience, right? So that operations manager and then plant manager role, and then very quickly getting rid of that person because, quite frankly, they didn't have the experience and the number of years. And I think the expectation was, well, we can get somebody younger at a much lower rate than someone with, you know, 10, 20 years of experience and we'll kind of let them sink or swim. Right. And I think, again, this is just what I've seen. It's very rarely successful. I think it's maybe like a short term play where, again, you can save uh, on the salary side, but you're definitely not going to run a manufacturing plant in which, Again, if you're a plant manager, you need to be understanding quite a few moving components of that facility. And I don't think it's just that simple to get somebody with a couple of years out of uh, university to uh, fill in those shoes. So I certainly, like I understand that point and people are commenting that it's also on the compensation side. Again, I think that uh, we all want somebody as cheap as possible and as knowledgeable as possible, but ultimately... You need to realize, uh, you know, what sacrifices or maybe what tradeoffs you're making by going that route. I, I've certainly, I've not seen it work out in uh, all positive ways, so to speak. That would be my comment. Um, to go back to Sean's point, uh, I, Dave, did you have a, a thought? Good. No, no.
0: Um, I, I was going to agree with that, um, and then I, I kind of want to continue on on the Sean side, but I want to ask you a question. Uh, kind of, I think we briefly talked about it with Sean but the world has changed a bit in, in a couple of weeks since we talked with Sean and, and Doug in the comments here is saying no code is chat GPT. And so I want to kind of get your feelings on low code and uh, and give you a little bit of a soapbox to, uh, to continue our previous conversation on uh, on chat GPT.
1: Yeah, so uh, Dave and I had a conversation off stream. Uh, I'm usually, I guess, if you talk to me in, in, in general outside of the stream, I'm fairly skeptical. I'm usually uh, hard to sway in way, one way or another. And for the longest time, I had a fairly negative impression of Chat GPT. The reason being is that uh, at Solos PLC, we create a lot of very technical content, right? And so it requires cu- quite a bit of industry knowledge. It is something that you cannot, I think, easily replicate through AI. Uh, I spent a bit of time experimenting with a couple of things on Chat GPT last night, and I've taking the time to sort of just try it out and see if I can leverage different prompts to create something a little bit more advanced. And what I found personally is that if you give it the the right inputs, right? So if you feed it the right information, you can get a result that is substantially better than the average, right? So if you just ask a random question, and this is the way it was explained to me, the AI is going to give you a vanilla answer, right? Because it doesn't have any preconceived notion of who you are. There's very clever ways to set the the tone, so to speak, for ChatGPT to give you the more advanced. So you can write something like, "Write to me as if uh, you were a very knowledgeable analyst or a very te- like a technical savvy expert," and you can get better results that way. But I think, look, I'm still just trying to experiment with things. My approach to any new technology is that. It's not necessarily to be on the cutting edge, but it's just being knowledgeable enough so that if there is a major change, I think they're, they're talking about releasing the next version, right? So this is GPT 4 I believe, and before we were on version three and two. Uh, so I think it's going to change quite a lot. So I would like to at least be knowledgeable enough to stay up to speed. Uh, but in the automation space, look, I, I've seen videos, there's people writing code for the Arduino side, on the Raspberry Pi side, using China GPT. I think it's going to be useful for the very basic applications. I think it's going to be very difficult to create uh, a a software that's going to be able to handle, let's say, a larger facility. But for maybe shorter snippets, if you forget something, if you're like, hey, I forgot how to set this I.O. or create a debouncing routine for me in, uh, let's say, C++, I don't know how it works with ladder logic. So, I've not tried anything on that side, but I think it, it can be useful in those very like basic applications where you just maybe forgot or if you're just uh, learning.
0: I... I think that you you are certainly – I mean if we had this conversation 24 hours ago, we'd probably be about the same amount of bullishness on it that, as we are now. I think you are certainly more bullish uh, on the, the possibilities, right? So I think that there are certainly some interesting possibilities as, as I look at it, I think to myself, hey – Is this an opportunity? I guess I look at it as a couple of opportunities. In the immediacy, it's a hey, I've got a question, or I'm looking for a writing prompt, or I'm looking for maybe a top list of some things, and I don't want to go to Google. Maybe I'm looking for something slightly more specific, uh, but in similar Google search terms. And I I can get kind of that that starting point. Um, I, I certainly don't think that we're to the point of it being able to regurgitate specific things and i i I don't think that we're able to i guess i don't think we're to the point of it being like give me a senior technical analyst you know feeling on you know insert x metric right um i so i don't think that we're there yet i don't know if it will get there but but i think it's certainly interesting as to how people can use it uh what i think and, and I have done very little playing around with this. Is and, and I would imagine that you would have to have your own instance, and, and it couldn't be open, right? But like I would imagine, like let's let's take the Solus PLC information uh, for instance. You guys have I don't know hundreds of hours, at least hundreds of hours of video, and tens or hundreds of thousands of words and, and pictures and documentations and things like that. And b- because it is a course and all of those things, you guys probably aren't going to go just feed and regurgitate all of that into, into, an open source, uh, into an open source library. But in theory, if you were to take like all of the solar stuff, if we were to take all of the manufacturing hub stuff, which is certainly less, uh, less behind any paywall or anything like that, because that, that doesn't exist. But if we were to take all of that and, and ask questions to it, Well, like very particular questions, like maybe we're looking uh, maybe we run into a particular problem problem with a, you know, a slick 500 a Rockwell slick 500. And we're trying to convert. Maybe we're trying to convert that to a compact logic, or maybe we're trying to go get Ethernet communication and protocol set up. And so I think that there's the opportunity for someone to go into a Solus PLC branded chat bot and, you know, say, hey, this is my problem. How do I solve the problem? And if you've solved the problem in one of those courses, go and kick that. I think that is very interesting. But again, I think that there's a bunch of intellectual property and paywalls and other things that that's behind that you wouldn't necessarily want to public source all of that. So I think that there are a bunch of applications like that that are very interesting. That could be helpful. Do I think that we are going to go replace use, Do I think that this is the replacement for programmers and coders across the world to go program and code kind of the next series of things? No. I think that if we were to the point of creating an artificial intelligence that could recode Google in a better way, Google or or, or Microsoft would have done it and they would have launched a a Google 2.0 or – I don't know, Microsoft would have to pick something other than Bing or, or Edge in order, to, uh, in order to go do that. But I think that those are very interesting uh, opportunities when we look at industry. And I think that moving forward, most large organizations have fairly large knowledge bases. I think that those knowledge bases are able, I think that those knowledge bases could get turned into a chatbot of some sort and that could be a, a very big opportunity and very helpful for everyone.
1: Yeah. And to, to your point, Dave, I don't know if you know this, but Microsoft has acquired or is in partnership with uh, ChatGPT, GPT, right? Like, I don't know what kind of an agreement. I think they're, they they're a
0: major investor. Exactly. I, I, I heard exactly. that they, I heard before the launch, they were a major investor. And I heard that they invested significantly more after Long, I think I heard it like they right. invested another billion dollars or something like that. But, but I guess my point is if Chat GPD could recode Office 360 or 365, then I think that they would be they would fire all of their developers, save hundreds of millions of dollars in overhead, and just have the artificial intelligence for that. So, so, in my opinion, we're not to the point of that replacing humans on the development side.
1: And there's a lot of conversations, and again, I know this because I've listened to a few podcasts on it. So don't take my word as the the, the single source of truth. But ultimately, there's conversations around it becoming more of a back end tool versus uh, like an open ended marketplace, right? Because I think Microsoft has their own uh, mm-hmm. services that they're very interested in in augmenting through ChatGPT, and not necessarily just opening it as a search engine. But I think it's it's very interesting. I think. We're going to see a lot of changes in that space i think there's already ai tools that are starting to be built on it there's a few things that i've tested uh karim had sent me this uh, plugin for linkedin where you can automatically parse the the post and then comment based on the information given and all the you know aggregate ai like web things so it pre-fills a response for you in my experience it was a little bit questionable but anyways that's a whole separate discussion um, I want us, before we move on to Jim, which is also a very interesting conversation on data, uh, a couple of side questions that we've gotten that I think are good to explore that we may have explored later, but I'll bring them in now because people have asked them. So, from the YouTube side, we have a question on Codasys. So, do you think Codasys is the way to go in 2023? Uh, several colleagues state that it's not user friendly and troubleshooting is extremely difficult. Some people suggested Codasys is well for or is better suited for home projects. And so maybe to expand that a little bit more Dave so again because of the pandemic because of supply chain I think we can we all agree on that. people have started to experiment with different platforms in a manufacturing space right and on my side I can comment that I see uh, not just the controllers but a lot of drives right so something that fails a lot more frequently than let's say your PLCs, is going to be replaced on a on a semi regular basis in a factory, and so the question that I've had from my end users is well, we're migrating to this different drive. How do we can communicate with our existing PLC to these drives? So I guess like to reformulate uh, a question for you, what are your thoughts on these various platforms that we see? So again, Allen Bradley and Siemens have been the dominant force for forever. Now we have Phoenix Contact, Opto twenty two, Wago uh Amran, Mitsubishi that also dominate, you know, their own markets. Are you seeing them being easier to adopt? Are you seeing more manufacturers kind of at least testing them out if not switching over? Or are you seeing maybe any examples of complete overhauls like, hey, let's rip out this platform and replace it with this new one?
0: So Vlad, I, I appreciate you taking one question and turning it into about 40 questions. Good. Um so uh l- let me give let, let me let me break that down a little bit. Um kind of my general feelings of codesists. I, I like Codasys, I like the direction that Codesys is going into. I I always appreciate, I'm just gonna call it more open source, more open opportunities in order for, for people to go in and learn to program and, and learn to code and do all of those things. I like that Codasys is is expanding the number of different libraries they have, the number of different types of controllers that are being used in it. I mean, you, you can see all of the opto stuff above Vlad's head if you guys are watching live. Love the the opto stuff. I, I love what they're doing. We had Benson on about a year ago um, talking about talking about opto and kind of Codasys to some extent. So, so generally speaking, I I like Codasys. I and beyond that, I think that it is production ready. And, and I haven't done a lot of production. I guess I haven't done any production work with Codasys, but I know a lot of people who have, and they tell me that it works in production. And I am more than happy to, to go ahead and believe that it works in production based upon their assessments. Um, having said that, on the adoption or use case, or should Codasys be the first uh, platform that I, I learned or the second platform that, that I learned, I, I think the vast majority of Hardware out there is is Rockwell, is, is Allen Bradley, as almost everyone sees. There are certainly some industries that, that are very Siemens heavy, but I think between the Allen Bradley and the Siemens of the world, at least in the U.S. and North America, what I've seen, it's probably north of 90%. It um, is probably worth, it is probably north of 90% of the installed base. Uh, If I'm going to go suggest a a platform for someone to go learn, I would go suggest probably in that order, because it will be the best opportunities for people to go find jobs and expand upon what, what those jobs look like. If you are looking for a platform uh, like it, maybe you know the Rockwell, maybe you know that the Siemens, maybe you're looking for something else. Maybe you're looking to go play on microcontrollers or something less expensive or something that doesn't cost thousands of dollars a year in order to have licenses on. Yeah, absolutely. Go go try Codasys. I, I think that it, it's I think it's a very good production ready software. If I was going to start from scratch, I would probably strongly consider that myself just because the the ease of use. And, and the varying types of programming languages. Uh, talking about, am I, see, I, I guess, talking about with the pandemic and the supply chain issues, am I seeing kind of wholesale changes? I guess, as I'm thinking about it, Vlad, I think in my career, I've seen one wholesale change uh, from Rockwell to—I I won't talk about the specific brand—but from Rockwell to a Codasys, uh, to a Codasys brand—but that was a very special case of there being lots of issues with I/O cards failing randomly and Rockwell being unable or not even unwilling to go replace in the something like 56 lines that this facility had or 56 controllers that this facility had. And every hour of downtime was more than a hundred thousand dollars of, of cost. So they just ripped everything Rockwell out of the facility and put in a a Codacys brand. That is the particular, but very, very edge use case that I have ever seen or heard of. Most groups, especially large groups that, that I know that are very particular on the Rockwell platform are, we're going we're, we're gonna to wait, right? We're going to wait. We're going to go find someone who has it. We're going to go to eBay. Yeah, we are not going to go try to reinvent ourselves because it makes things like troubleshooting and everything else more difficult. Uh, have I certainly seen and talked to some smaller groups who are interested and willing to do that? Absolutely. Um, have we talked to the folks that we know at Phoenix and the folks that we know at Opto? And, and have they, to, by general extent, had really, really good years and sold out of most of everything that they could make? Absolutely. So more people are using it. Um I, More people are using it. I would not shy away from using it. Just generally speaking, I don't see the, the large organizations... Doing, I don't see the large organizations moving that way at any time in the near future, and if you are looking to start to find a way to make yourself more marketable, Codisys, sadly, at this point, is not the platform that I that I, I would suggest. How about you, Vlad? Are you seeing similar things? Are you seeing different things? Are, are you single-handedly going and changing every uh, facility in Montreal over to only Codisys?
1: No, I mean, I certainly resonate uh, with uh, with your answer Dave I think it's an excellent or an interesting platform that's coming up I've certainly not seen a lot of it in the field as you mentioned I also have connections who are highly reputable in the automation space who have you know it, it's one of those things whether like we never want to see it in our factory or we absolutely yeah. love it that's the only thing we program in we're very deeply specialized in CodeSys. And typically, you know, that comes mm-hmm. also with like back-off experience. They they program like TwinCat, Assist. So I think it's more of a blend and more of like where your expertise lies. And so if you're coming more of with a stronger software background, I've seen people gravitate to those platforms versus, uh, you know, the more traditional kind of lateral logic first um, dominant uh, platforms that you mentioned both in north america and europe but yeah i would agree that uh I, I think i would start with those platforms if i'm looking to land a job and if i'm you know doing some home automation stuff but even then i think if i'm personally doing home automation i would go with uh, a couple of other options than maybe codices but i think it's still a good uh, mm-hmm. good alternative to consider um the other question oh. Dave, I Go ahead. I was going
0: to say, but before we move on, I will say Vlad and I again are, are excited about Codasys. We will have Codasys examples on this show uh, later this year, um, so you guys stay tuned, uh, follow along. We will have some Codasys examples on this show, and and more people that program in Codasys a- as we get further into the year. Uh, back to you, Vlad.
1: First time I hear about this, but it's it it's sounds exciting. It's not the exciting, first time dude. you've heard say- about it.
0: It's not the first time you've heard about it. Just the first time you thought of it this way. <laughs>
1: It's going to be good. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. The other question that is important, and that was also on my list of things, but but uh, machinery as a service or mm-hmm. product as a service, I know me and you talked a little bit about robotics as a service, uh, yeah. robotic cells, uh, what is it? Bright machines, I think, embraces that model to some extent. I, uh, I guess like, I don't know bit. what they're, right. A little bit, or they're trying to get in that market. Uh, I've certainly, you know, I, I'll give my two cents before I let you, Give your perspective on it. I've not seen a lot of these because I have been working with fairly large organizations that have the capital to just purchase the machine or the cell or the, um, you know, the production line, so to speak. So I'm certainly curious, you know, what you're seeing if you've seen some of these deals. And maybe even for someone who's not familiar with um, this type of an operation or offering, could you maybe break that down for us before you give your thoughts on it?
0: Uh, absolutely. So. I think there are a variety of machines as a service opportunities out there. Uh, I'm going to give kind of a very simple one and then we can talk about some applications and then we can talk about kind of my thoughts on it, right? So the the easiest option that I've seen is palletizers, right? So so most manufacturing organizations, at some point we make our widgets and we've got to put them in pallets so that we can wrap them up in saran wrap and so that we can go ship them. Um, Having said that, lots of palletizers cause problems for people and they can be fairly expensive and they can be long lead times. So, uh, the concepts of, we'll just call it robots as a service or machine as a service palletizer is instead of saying, Hey Vlad, you've got to go spend, we'll just, we'll call it a quarter of a million dollars in order to go buy this palletizer. You get me a bank loan, it's going to take X number of weeks or months. We will deliver it. You will sign off on it, and then we'll never talk to you again unless you give us another purchase order in, because it's broken or you need more training or something like that, right? So, so that that is that that is kind of the the very quick way of how kind of legacy systems integration machines go. Uh, we get a purchase order, we build the thing, we deliver the thing, we we run off at X rate, and then do maybe some sort of training, give you some sort of documentation, and you own it. Uh, as a machine or robot, as a service, palletizer as a service, the concept. There are a couple of different concepts. I'm going to lay it out the way that that in my mind I like the most. Right. So in that we say, Hey Vlad, instead of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you run at X number of hours per day. Um, we'll get you good to go commit to a contract, but instead of uh, instead of ca- causing you to pay. up front, you're going to have to pay, call it $50 an hour. So every hour you run this, we're going to pay $50 an hour. We're going to commit you to some number of hours either per month or per year for, for some duration of time. And then that way you only pay when you use it. Now, if it breaks, if there are some issues with it, I don't want you screwing around with my machine because it's got to run in order for me to get paid on it. So... I'm going to go service it. I am going to go do the preventative maintenance. I am the person that you're going to call if there is an issue and we're going to go fix it. And ideally, we are selling a bunch of similar uh, palletizers like this. So if there's a big issue, maybe I'm just going to bring another robot with me. And if it's a robotic issue, we're just going to pull the old robot out, slap the new robot in. Jam the, jam the program in and you're going to get up and going and I'm going to go pull the other robot off to the side and we're going to figure out what's wrong with it. Maybe you get the same robot back. Maybe you get the the new robot, but you're up and running and then I'm going to go take this robot back, figure out what's wrong with it and go put it on the next palletizer. And then you commit to, to I would imagine it's some multiple of that $250,000 over the life of the contract. So call it maybe three acts over the life of the contract. But you've now reduced your need to go spend the capital up front. And many organizations that I find interested in this uh, ideally are smaller to medium sized organizations that don't have $250,000 lining, lying around and don't have or don't want to go to the bank in order to go ask for a loan and kind of wait that. In addition, there are some nice benefits about not having to worry about the service. There are some benefits about not having to worry about the PMs. Someone else kind of owning that, and then there are some tax benefits of there. There are tax benefits of benefits. There are tax benefits of both owning the machine, but also there are tax benefits of not owning the machine. Uh, th- this is absolutely not the show in which which we will go and give either correct or completely incorrect tax advice. But there there are tax ramifications that cause some groups, again, kind of small to medium uh, to look at. So if you're a Fortune 50, uh, or you're a Fortune, uh, really anything, machines as a service probably is not going to work for you unless you're you're call it pepsico and pepsico spins off a a whole machinery side and then they go rent it out to their own sites right like 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 that in theory like i have a company that owns the facilities and i've got a company that owns the machines and i make pop but i also rent the machines that go make the the pop or or the soda right i think that that's an opportunity for for larger organizations but generally speaking If you've got a fortune, anything in front of your name, I don't imagine that a machine as a service is going to be uh, is going to be correct for you. Having said all that, I think that there are some very particular applications where where machinery or robots or palletizers as a service have good opportunities. So I worked with a a brewery co-packer last year for a period of time. And we, we went through the process of, hey, they need a depalletizer and a palletizer. And we did some calling around, and man, it was like nine months and $400,000 were kind of the, the big numbers of what it was going to take to get a depalletizer and a palletizer. And, and that was only because someone had canceled and gotten out of their spot in line for the combination of depalletizer, palletizer. It's if actually not I that could, expensive. No. I, I mean, so, so they, they were... They were not big palletizers or depalletizers, right? So, so it was it was for cans, and it was a relatively slow line, right? So, so it, it was not very it was not very expensive. It almost certainly didn't include the conveyors in between or, or any of that stuff. But, but generally speaking, very small. And so, if if I could have for fifty or hundred dollars an hour for the hours that that I was going to run them every week gotten something in six to eight weeks because there was something fairly standard on the shelf, we could have modified what we were going to do with that in order to to get that going. Then I think that there were some opportunities. And so when I look, especially at the co-packing industry, because they're always looking to scale up and scale down as needed. and, And honestly... For some of these newer organizations, they don't necessarily know what tomorrow is going to look like. I think that there are huge opportunities for there, and I am excited to go try to find some, some opportunities for machines as a service with some folks that, that I've talked to who deliver those type of solutions, hopefully this
1: year. It's an interesting it's an inter- interesting industry, right? Like, I, I'm wondering, and I guess the thought that I have in my mind is how how niche of a cell or I guess like service or machine you want to create, right? Because again, this is a similar type of model. If I want to make the analogy to something like an Uber, maybe like a, an Airbnb slash, you know, there's now you can rent your own car to other people, right? So you can essentially, if I own a, a Toyota Corolla, I can put it on this marketplace and somebody could rent out the Toyota Corolla for a day, for a week, whatever. Uh, So I'm wondering if I'm, let's say, a machine builder or if I'm a robotics, let's say, distributor, Mm -hmm. if I am putting out entire like palletizing solutions, because I know that a palletizing solution is very difficult to adapt between different manufacturers. And so if I create this cell, I know that I can technically readapt Mm -hmm. it and massage it to some extent, versus if I'm just renting out, let's say, the robot arm, and then the end user handles everything that kind of surrounds that arm and the arm being maybe the most lead time extensive right. Uh, what are your thoughts I, like, around that?
0: I I think that there could be opportunities to rent out robot arms, but, but I feel like it just that gets very tricky, right? So if the palletizer isn't running, we know and, and I own the palletizer, then I know that I need to go send someone there to go fix the palletizer. Basically, whatever that means, we need to get the palletizer up and running. If, Vlad, you own the robot arm and I own everything else, the robot isn't running in the palletizer uh, or the palletizer isn't working, guess who's getting the first call saying, Vlad, you've screwed up my palletizer. Come fix this right now before I start charging you for the amount of downtime I have. You are going to be the person getting that call in in the immediacy. So I... I think owning this, I think owning the cell is going to be important or the machine is going to be important. And I think you want something as, as easy to modify as humanly possible. Right. So it, it, I, again, I think palletizers, like you may have to change what we are palletizing, but, but generally a palletizer has, has a fairly normal structure depending upon where the conveyor comes in and out that may change. Um, and we would in in my mind, we would generally agree that you're going to have it for X period of time, right? Like there there are probably outs or stipulations where you can buy it out, you can buy out of the contract if you don't want it and other things like that. But I don't see this working unless the people who are making these robots or machines as a service have the opportunity to make more money than they would if they just sold it for a cash purchase order up front. And then course, someone's yep. going to go sit there and hold the cash, right? And, we, and so so some bank, basically a bank, right, is going to go sit there and hold the cash. And so that bank needs to go make money on that. The person, if there's someone in the middle selling it, has to make money on that. And the integrator making it has to go make money on that. So the integrator's price is, call it, two hundred grand. The, the bank needs to probably make 10% over the, the four years. So that's 220 grand. We throw another 20% on for the person selling and it. So we're probably a minimum of 250 grand in on a $200,000 machine. And then I would imagine at some point, because there's service and other things like that, you've got to add more costs. So so maybe we're $300,000 in on a $200,000 machine. And then again, some people are going to want to go make multiples of that if they're not going to go get paid out all at once. So you will pay more, but you'll be able to, in theory, get it immediately. And there are some groups we're, we're leasing or renting will be beneficial for them for a variety of reasons
1: sure and i would say you know there's a lot of nuances in this entire business model and i i have a lot of questions you know for you dave but i will throw down the gauntlet if anybody's listening to our conversation and would like to maybe enlighten us a little bit more on the financials on the liabilities on what maybe the good approach might be I think that would certainly be a very good conversation topic for manufacturing hub. I think it is an interesting, how to say its structure to consider. But obviously, I have a lot of pros and cons on my list. And so I would certainly like to talk to someone who's doing these deployments to uh, understand it really well.
0: So I have a guy... Uh, his name is also Dave. We can probably get him on when we get back to the robotics theme. We can go hammer on uh, machines as a service. He and I have had a number of these conversations. I think that uh, I think it could be good. We will certainly work on bringing him on when we get back to robotics. Uh oh, goodness, Vlad. The, the time has already flown, but I want to make yes. sure that we get some. I want to make sure we get some insights. On uh, kind of the other topics and forced yes. you to make a couple of predictions. So we had Jim Gavigan uh, come back on almost 90 episodes in between. I, I don't know how Jim and I have probably had 200 hours of conversations in, in between episodes, but Jim, about 90 episodes in between uh, him coming on. What were your thoughts on, on what he's doing with data? What What do you think the future of that's going to look like?
1: Yeah, I think that people like him and uh, Jim's team are going to be in more and more demand as we uh, progress with integrating every single component on the production floor into a database, uh, and more specifically in time series. Um, I want to say like analytics tools. And so, as as you know, uh, prior to going back and doing my MBA, I worked in quite a bit of data applications, so I certainly mm-hmm. understand a lot of the nuances that uh, Jim was talking about. I think it takes a very skilled individual uh, in that space to be able to understand the process, understand kind of what data we're getting at this point, understanding what we can get from that data and ultimately help an organization navigate and understand like what do we need to do to get better data, right? So we talked a lot about like, cleaning up the data and just making sense of what's currently there. So cleaning up that data, then analyzing that data. But at the same time, you know, and this is a very critical component that I think in our industry is not discussed as much as getting real business actionable insights, right? And what I mean by that is it's great to see that we're collecting a ton of information. Uh, IO link has been very popular on LinkedIn. Everybody likes to connect to sensors that send you a ton of data. But ultimately uh, we are all here and I think like we are all getting because we're able to put more cases out the door, right? For better or for worse. And I understand there's nuances to that. But ultimately, uh, we need to be able to make better process, have less scrap and ultimately improve the profitability of the manufacturer. And so to come back to the data point, I think there's a lot of missed opportunity in saying, hey, well, we can connect more data. We want to get more data. Uh, you know we can collect faster data more reliable mm-hmm. data but ultimately none of that matters until we can better our process uh, and, and so I think Jim's team is very well positioned he understands I really well he understands different processes really well he's got t- uh, teammates from various verticals and uh, I think people like that are going to be more and more needed in the industry as uh, as I've said again as we collect more and more data. So those are my thoughts Dave, what about you?
0: I, I would agree. Uh, I have known Jim since for almost the entirety of industrial insight and uh, and, and I agree uh, with, with your comments. I think that uh, I think that industrial, machine and manufacturing intelligence is going to only become more valuable. And I think the real value is when we can create business cases for that. Uh, very similar to, to what you you and I are working on, right? But I think that we need to create business cases for that data and for that information. At the end of the day, if we're not moving cases of whatever then the business isn't making money. And if the business isn't making money, then we're all going to be out of jobs at some point soon. So collect data, absolutely. Go use data, absolutely. Just make sure that you you somewhere in there, connect the business intelligence to the manufacturing intelligence to make sure that the decisions that everyone is making make sense financially. And as you and I have talked about for for many hours, Flood, that is where I see most groups I'll use the word lacking to, to begin with, but it's not just that they're lacking that. It's that it's either so far outside of their consideration or their scope or any of these things of the work that they've done, like that they don't even consider it. And that is because I think the OT side and the business side are, are generally siloed in different areas. And, and most facilities don't do a good job kind of explaining the business side to the OT folks, or, or or vice versa, to understand why we need to do this and, and why it matters and all of those things. At some point, everyone knows that we need more throughput and we need less waste and we need higher quality and we need better on-time delivery and all of these things. But, but in many cases, we don't do a good job explaining the business case for most groups. And, and that needs to change. Now, I think the real question is, Do you think that's going to change in 2023, Vlad?
1: Uh, Look, I I see it changing, obviously, slowly, just like anything else in manufacturing. The comment that I would make is, I think it's very easy to be sold on the idea that we need to get all the data before we do anything, right? And you've talked to me enough to kind of know that my thought is if we can collect it, then we probably should. Uh, But I place a, a caveat on that statement, right? Like I think that it's great like on the technical side to say like hey we don't have enough data let's get more data right like and and i understand that there's a there's a number of projects that can be en- executed there but i think ultimately what a lot of uh, i see or the misses that i see when i go to manufacturing plants is they have some sort of let's say like a, of an oe metric right and again i'm not talking maybe like the very very small shops that don't have that but you have a way to measure Some fundamental number of cases that are coming through your door, right? And if we get in a conversation with them and let's say realize, well, we would like to understand your downtime a little bit better, if we want to understand and identify bottlenecks a little bit better. So let's say we need to add more data to your line, we need to capture some of these sensors, or maybe it's already in the PLCs, just not in some kind of like an MES system, mm-hmm. fine, right? Like that's a three months to, let's say six month long project. Someone needs to create the drawings. We need to install that. that. That's great, right? But while we're getting there, there's still a number of projects that you can implement that you can still leverage your current data in in order to track either progress or I, I guess like degress. And so I think the trap that a lot of, People fall into is waiting for having the right data in order to take action, right? And so what I've uh, realized is it's it's the same, even like on the tool side, it's not as important which tool you pick, right? So I talked a little bit on LinkedIn about the root cause analysis tools. It's important to pick a tool and then stick with the process of implementation and track a metric of data, right? So some facilities are going to have that a lot in, in, in a lot more detail, some in a lot less detail, but it's important to start taking the steps now with the data you have versus trying to, uh, again, like six months down the road, we're going to have all the data. It's going to be great. It's going to be time series. It's going to be, uh, again, pulled at a millisecond level. I think it's, it's a mistake that I see happen far too often, uh, again, because I'm also excited about technology, right? Like, and I think it's great to see more and more things coming in from the network, from the sensors, like I said, the PLCs, but it's important to take action with what we have in, in the current stage.
0: I, I agree. I, so, so, Jim, I don't think he made the comment on this show, but, but Jim likes to joke how, how many groups are ready, shoot, aim. Right. Uh, so b- before aiming, before looking at the data, before understanding it, they, they just kind of jump around and, and try a shotgun approach in, in which we go try to fix things because we think that's the way that, that we, we think that this is the problem. So if we think that this is the problem, let's go try to fix this. And oh, if we just made the problem worse, well, hopefully we've reversed the thing that we did to make the problem worse before we go try to fix it again, because otherwise there are just compounding effects in which we we have suddenly made the process much worse. Hopefully we remember how to revert that process. I I think that th- there are lots of tools that will help us do that that aiming. Um that, that will help us do that aiming that will help us do that aiming better and I feel like they're becoming more accessible for a variety of reasons and we will get into that. I I don't know if I think we will see more people use these tools i think we'll see more people use companies like industrial insight in order to to go drill down on a bunch of information that they already have i don't know if 2023 is going to be the year that yeah i don't know if 2023 is going to be the year that we see kind of mass adoption of this i think that we've still got a long way to go before before we get to uh before we get to that point, uh, but but as you mentioned earlier, Vlad, like I think that going and looking at data and being able to collect the data is absolutely important, but there are certainly ways to go make impactful business and operational changes without having all of the data, right? There are people on the floor, there are things that exist that don't involve six to 12 months of implementation and a quarter of a million dollars of tools or $2 million of tools in order to get to the point of, Hey, now we have this information. Now we can get to the point that we should have been two years ago of starting to make these decisions.
1: Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, 2023 I think is going to raise a lot more questions. I've certainly had conversations with customers who are, checking their expenses, right? So in the last, let's say three years, we spent a lot of money on different tools. They'll bring us more data. Where are the improvements that were promised by the tools, right? So whether that's like 1% improved efficiency, or that could be, you know, 20% OE, something as crazy as that. Uh, That being said, I think that as we go into this more uncertain period, whether it is a recession or not, I, I certainly think so. But uh, a lot more expenses are going to be questioned. And I think some of these tools are the first, uh, how to say it, like the first target, right? Like they they are, <laughs> how to say it, because it, in many instances, and again, this is my experience, they are sold as sort of the silver bullet to a lot of the problems. And we've mm-hmm. certainly created a lot of, a lot of data lakes, uh, good or bad, you know, that's, again, that's a separate discussion. But ultimately, I think in 2023, a lot of PLs are going to be picked up with, hey, like this major item on our list is this improvement efficiency OE metric tool that we've installed. Could you show us what's the ROI on this, right? And I think as yeah. those questions come up, uh, they'll have no choice but to push the teams to use uh, said data.
0: Or, or they're just going to start axing the tools, right? But no, yes. I, I agree with that. And I think the... The larger the cost and the larger the reoccurring cost, the the more people are going to go look at it. Uh, so every once in a while, I like to pick on Wonderware, right? Uh, and I think that's because they just kind of have some of the, the biggest legacy uh, uses that, that, that I've seen, right? So I know some, some fairly, I don't know, medium-sized manufacturing facilities that have half a million or a million dollars of annual Wonderware licensing, right? And and every once in a while I'll get a call or have a conversation with them and they'll say, Hey, I've got I've got Wonderware. I've got to go through the process of upgrading my Wonderware. And and I use Wonderware because Wonderware historically, in, in my view, has, has told end users that hey, you guys have to upgrade to the next version, and the upgrade is half a million dollars. And then the question becomes, hey, is it worth half a million dollars? And in many instances, you can rebuild a lot of what you've got with new licensing from a variety of different groups for less than half a million dollars uh, or a million dollars. So I I think that as we move forward, we're going to see more of the legacy software go away. I think we're going to see more people start to actually say, hey, does this reoccurring revenue make sense? And I I honestly think that it's less of an issue If they are like, let's say it's $10 per user per month, right? I feel like that's going to be less of an issue than a $200,000 per year annual license, right? So if you've got something that's $200,000 per year, at some point, finance business is going to want to know, is this worth $200,000 a year or more? And if it's not worth $200,000 a year or more, then... Th- there's going to be some, some strong considerations of if we're not making as much as we're spending on it, why are we spending it? You know, we've got to go potentially tighten our belts or whatever any of those analogies that we want to use. Where do we go from here? Uh, so I, I think it'll be interesting as we go through it. I, I also think that if you've got good business cases for the tools you have, there will only or, or the services that you have, there will only continue to be more
1: opportunities. Yeah, I would definitely agree, Dave. Uh, if we move to the last conversation we had with Alicia and Nikki Gonzalez uh, on this Wednesday, what uh, what were some of your thoughts? I, I think we've touched on a number of topics, uh, including kind of the state of the industry overall. Like, what are your thoughts on the on that conversation?
0: Absolutely. So, so first, it, it's always good to uh, to get on with the automation, ladies. Uh, I love and we love uh, what what they're doing. We're always happy to share a stage uh, with them. I think that we brought up a bunch of good points, uh, topics that you and I don't typically discuss because they don't typically fall within within a theme of what we're talking about. But we talked about a lot about workforce, right? We talked a lot about workforce development. How do we get younger people in general into the workforce? And then how do we get uh, historic, people who historically would not be in manufacturing or automation, right? So so how do we get people of color? How do we get uh, how do we get uh, you, you know ladies? How do we get Basically, kind of non-white guys into into automation and manufacturing, and I think it's really important, right? So for, for the longest time, you know, you go to a trade show, and it's always really good to see kind of younger kids out there, and you do your best to kind of go showcase some of the awesome things that we get to do, right? Like if you, if anyone watching can go see the wall of, of fun toys Vlad has behind him, I, I mean, he has them up there because he loves them, and because I think he really likes setting off my OCD with, with all of the, the cabling, uh, not hidden behind uh not not hidden behind the board. Uh but like like he has them up there because they're they're fun and, and all of those other things. And it's very rare that we get to go talk about the fun, enjoyable things that we get to do. And I think Allie and Nikki made a, a really good point on Hey, we gotta go showcase the awesome things that we get to do. Uh, we we made the point that if there are any uh, OEMs listening and they want to go have kind of go bring any combination of us out there so that we can go do the the floor tour and we can go showcase some of the awesome things that they do and get some shots of robotics and get some shots of of other cool things. Uh, we lo- like please drop me a line. Give a, give any of us a ring. We would love to go figure out what what that looks like because it is. To, to, to some extent, you know, part of the goal of what we're doing to showcase some of the fun things that we get to do. And by having some of these fun conversations, it will only help all of us into the future. Um, I will kind of go, go make the comment that I've heard Tim Wilborn make uh, a, a couple of times, uh, so, something to the effect of he makes a lot of these videos because he considers it's his, his retirement plan, right? But like we need at, at some point, it, we've still got, all, still got a bunch more years to go. But at some point, we'll need people to come in behind us in order to continue the work that we're doing. And the only way that we can continue to proliferate that is to help get the next generation excited in, uh, in the workforce. Uh, Vlad, what are your key takeaways?
1: Uh, Yeah, I certainly, you know, I, um, how to say like, I had a lot of thoughts about how we as the automation industry are putting our best forward to bring in the younger generation i've uh, mentioned this a couple of times you know on the stream that when i got into manufacturing i had absolutely no idea what a plc was i've never seen robotics i had never seen servo drives i think there's how to say this maybe secretive kind of uh, not society but i i guess like once you know about it you kind of understand the opportunities but it's very difficult to find information about automation and I think it's not very well marketed towards college and I want to say high school and uh, like university students I'm certainly uh, like I've gotten in touch and I've been in associations during my bachelor's level at the at at the engineering side with that would promote different like jobs different employers and I had sent them messages and there are some projects in um uh, in that through which like i hope people get a chance to see what manufacturing has to offer mm-hmm. but i think just like anything else it will be very slow to change so that's kind of like my takeaway i think that manufacturers are not going to be uh as reluctant as we would like them or as we understand but i think as the younger workforce sort of takes over I- again like i i use this uh, example a bit humoristically but uh they're not going to be as scared of a palletizer being posted on like TikTok and whatever other platforms, you know, quote unquote kids use these days. And so we will <laughs> attract more people. Right. So um, but until that happens, I think it's just I don't know. I think it's a little bit unfortunate. Right. Because as I mentioned, the example of like Facebook, Twitter and all those software first companies they have a ton of open source projects. You can read about everything there is to know. You can literally reverse engineer a lot of their code, and they they make it available for free, right? Like for free in the open, and it's very interesting for someone who's in the engineering space to see that and like, hey, I would like to work there because you know there's really cool tools being made, there's interesting challenges, and I don't think we're doing as good of a job at exposing the interesting challenges in the automation space. So that's kind of like my main takeaway. Uh, But at the same time, you know, on the positive side, I think there's a lot of opportunities. I think the space is shifting. I think there's a lot of changes in the kind of like the workforce environment, right? So there's uh, a lot less of this 90% travel lock-in. There's a little bit less of this whole uh, mentality of you have to pay your dues, so to speak. I think there's a lot more inclusivity. I think there's a lot more, uh, conversations about better salaries, right? So I think the rates have gone up quite significantly for a number of reasons in uh, in mm-hmm. automation. So I think it's an even more how to say it, like suitable career for many. That's uh, that. Those are my takeaways from uh, that conversation. But we certainly, you know, we've talked about a lot. We talked about clothing, which was also like very interesting. And I, you know, certainly have not faced the same challenges as Ali or Nikki. So I I can't talk how difficult it is maybe to find the right shoes, pants or, or anything else as a, as a, as a woman. So it's uh it's interesting topics for sure. So uh, hopefully it uh, get solved for them.
0: Now, I want to say for anyone who who watch who listens to us only on podcast form and doesn't watch the live shows, Vlad is the biggest fashionista uh, who has ever stepped foot on a man manufacturing floor. Uh, yeah. Vlad just Vlad loves clothes um vlad owns many types of clothes uh we've all seen him in many types of clothes uh vlad's next uh next purchase will be to try to race Ally to own more different types uh, of safety vests i think Ally's up to seven um by the time amazon comes in next week vlad will be up to 24 and then it will just it'll, it'll be a race to the moon at uh, at that point
1: good um but no Dave, uh, so maybe closing topics. Uh, I had listed a, a bunch of trends. I think we've covered a lot of them in our tangential sort of uh, mm-hmm. small quest-like conversations. But predictive maintenance, maintenance in general, do you think that's going to change? I'll, I'll throw in you know, an interesting company that I've seen kind of rise over the last couple of years, Upkeep. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they are essentially a CMMS uh, and I've, uh, you know, having been in maintenance, I've seen how challenging something like SAP could be for the maintenance yep. department. Uh, and so I see a, not necessarily a rise, but I see a lot of people developing these smaller tools that address a very specific kind of need. And so mm-hmm. I'm wondering on the maintenance side, are you seeing it become better? There's also, you know, tools to monitor vibration. There's a lot of different mm-hmm. things coming out. What are your thoughts on the maintenance side?
0: So on the general maintenance side, I'm going to start by saying we generally, we have to get better, right? So I've been in very few facilities that everyone always says, hey, my maintenance staff is, is A number one. Whenever I have an issue, they are proactively going to try to solve the issue or they immediately run out whenever they hear the line stop. And man, my second and third shift maintenance folks are rock stars. Those weekend guys they they toil away tirelessly um going and doing preventative stuff if uh if they're not actively working on somewhere else something else i have heard that zero times so i would say generally speaking maintenance we need to get better uh, i had an interesting conversation in the last week or so on predictive maintenance right i think predictive maintenance is an interesting tool i see very little predictive maintenance being used well, I'll say kind of used well, but kind of the, the conversation was, I think predictive is a tool in the tool belt, right? So, so we need preventative maintenance, right? So most facilities, if we're a little bit better on preventative maintenance, um, our facilities would run better. In general, so I think preventative maintenance is a tool. I think predictive maintenance is a tool. I think training and making sure that we have well-equipped our, our general maintenance staff, and to make sure that we're all in line with things that need to be done. I think all of these are our, all of these are items that that we as an organization must we we as kind of a community and a number of organizations must become better at if we are hoping to succeed in those business cases in the future. Uh, kind of beyond that, I would say that when I go and look and talk to, to when I go and look and talk to maintenance folks, my conversations are generally, "Hey, what is working? What is not working?" and then going and overlaying that with, with actionable business information that we see uh, from the business side and any data that we've got on the plant floor, and then going to help the going to help solve those problems. And I'm not saying point solutions are the right solution for everything. But I'm saying that, that if we've got a major issue, we can provide some more training, or we can have some pre-flashed VFDs or something like that on a shelf, or we can put vibration sensors on, you know, one particular area that we continue to have problems with, and maybe it maybe it's a single solution that you know just feeds into a, a cloud uh, cloud dashboard. Like go pick and, and create solutions that are correct for your maintenance staff and are correct for, for your facility. And that's what I think that we need to do more of. And that is honestly my hope for 2023 is that more facilities don't just say, Hey, our maintenance sucks. We need new maintenance people, or we need to do better. It's a, Hey, these are our issues. Let's go figure out how to go solve these particular issues and then go pick and play based upon what needs to be done.
1: I would add to that, Dave, also, you know, from, from my experience, I'm and maybe like more on the tool side, uh, I'm, also, I'm always very skeptical when the sales pitch is, A, we have a facility in where quote unquote maintenance sucks, and we're trying to use this very advanced analytical tool in order to make it, you know, like a hundred times better. Uh, my kind of philosophy, and again, this is based on what I've seen in these departments, is that you need to look for incremental changes, right? So, if we are currently looking to, let's say, replace a very paper based system where everybody is, you know, taking down notes and then these stacks of, of sheets go to the maintenance manager who then like reviews and maybe like signs off on parts and, and different orders for PMs. I think that the logical step for me is like, hey, how can we digitize this so we can approach this in a more streamlined fashion and make the life of a of a mechanic or a technician troubleshooting the system a little bit better, right? And so as we go through these increments, we will get to that maybe preventive or predictive or whatever other like word you use maintenance. But I think you cannot just jump through all those steps in one in in one swoop get there, right? Like I, I'm very how to say it, not necessarily, I guess the word would be skeptical, but I've seen too many times where this fails, right? Like I really want to emphasize the fact that you need to go through those transitions and when the time is right, you can sort of implement the last step, which is where like AI, quote unquote, takes over your maintenance department and sort of understands all the failures. But I think just Mm -hmm. trying to migrate directly into that from you know what you've described i i just i have not seen it happen i've seen most departments push very hard against that and it's it's really really difficult to make that single step
0: absolutely i would say to that point at the core there's still people and they are still the same people who you'll be asking to go use these tools i've seen people do really great work with very few tools and I've seen people completely ignore the CMMS, and there's just 4,000 open maintenance items that just don't get done. And there's there's lists of preventative maintenance that everyone agrees needs to get done into the CMMS, and they just don't get done. And we've got machines that break because that doesn't work. So a tool is not going to solve your issues. A tool can a tool either exacerbate the issues that you already have because other things aren't getting done, or will help solve the problems. Uh, the, the tool itself is not going to be any sort of magic bullet. You still need to do the work of having the right people in place and align all of the goals together in order to get that done.
1: Absolutely. And it's coaching the people, right? It's monitoring what's being done, what's not being done. It's re-explaining the system. I think like that's the real challenge. I, don't, I really don't think that the tool or the implementation is the challenge. I think we have the technology. I think the tools are getting better. I think that they're making people more capable, quote-unquote, but it really takes time to implement these in place and it takes a very skilled, I think, person to lead that change. Um, Next, a couple of last final items, Dave. You know, we're almost there. Digital twins, uh, production efficiency, uh, simulation. Uh, What are you seeing on that side? Are you seeing any practical examples? I'm certainly, again, going to throw down that same gauntlet I know that we're talking as a as a conversation or as a topic on manufacturing hub later this Mm -hmm. year when it comes to simulation digital twin I've I've read a few case studies uh, on the Rockwell side I don't think they've revealed a lot of the technical kind of tooling on how it was done which maybe you know is the right thing to do but I've certainly I'm curious, what are you seeing? And I'm curious to see more examples, more demos, and kind of like more in-depth studies. So
0: I have, I've talked to a number of groups who have worked in the digital twin and the simulation area. And I think that their work is honestly very interesting. I have not done work with facilities that have kind of that digital twin style. Well, no, that's incorrect. I have not done work with it with digital twins with facilities that have them uh it's very possible that, that some facilities that, that i work or have worked with have those digital twins um so on my side the digital twin the simulation is, is really interesting i think it makes a lot of sense especially if the cost of the digital twin is in the tens of so i guess when i look at digital twins i think man this must be expensive it's probably a hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars minimum had conversations with groups that say kind of depending upon the simulation, it could be in the tens of thousands of dollars. And I'm like, Oh, I mean, th- this is much more reasonable for a bunch of different groups. So I think it's interesting for me. It's one of those areas that I, I more so know who to call when I run across one of those applications, as opposed to have a bunch of really good kind of questions and informations. I, I think we're going to do digital twin and or simulation at some point later this year, Got a couple of people who we can hopefully get on to talk about the experience that that they have. But generally speaking, I think Digital Twin simulation we're going to continue to see more opportunities with it I, i've made this this comment a number of times right so 10-ish years ago i i designed an aircraft facility right we did it on engineering grid paper that we all printed out i taped all of this together and it was the entire conference room table right the entire conference room was just push pins and, and tape of hey we're going to go put this thing in this place we, we cut it out on grids and we kind of moved machinery and airplanes and, and all of that around the facility. And honestly, if we were going to ever do it again, we just spend the money and, and simulate the whole thing because it would probably be cheaper to simulate the whole thing and be able to showcase it in a simulation uh, and easier than it would be to invest all of that time and money and hours to, uh, to go do the other side of uh, th- than to go do it kind of the old fashioned way. So I fully imagine that we're going to see more of that, especially in new build facilities. I think if you're a medium to large sized facility and you're looking to go make major changes um, of lines and other things, I, I think that that makes sense. That, that is a relatively insignificant portion of a much larger uh, of a much larger project. So I fully imagine we are going to see more of that into the future. And on my side, I look forward to go experiencing some more of that because I honestly think it's a really cool technology.
1: If I can maybe provide a, a bit of a perspective, because I think that the digital twin, I want to say, and it's it's loosely defined, I feel, in general in our industry. And I think that it's very unclear to many what uh, what kind of challenges it can solve. So I've had you know, conversations where I, I thought we were just like not on the same page when it comes to the definition. Right. And okay. again, I'm maybe not going to pitch the definition, but I will pitch or I will explain like a use case, right. Like where I think it would be an interesting approach. And so again, you can probably look up who I worked with at the time, but ultimately we had a production line of, uh, that costed more than $10 million And so, in order to test certain R&D projects, and this would be, you know, we're running like different materials, we're running a a new SKU that we would like to build, we were looking to run, you know, different plastics, a different mold from a different manufacturer. And so, we had a test line completely separated. So, imagine like a 10 10 million plus equipment worth of a line just sitting there being maintained for the purposes of R&D testing, right? And so... The challenge became, right, as you can imagine, in a factory, when anything breaks and you you don't have that part in the supply room or if anything is missing, that line becomes the quote-unquote pillage space for a number of uh, items. And so it became very expensive to maintain, monitor, and just keep that line up and running. So number one, you're investing a lot of money, right? Like you have you have a whole line that's just sitting there. Uh, mm-hmm. Alternatively, if you go to a production line, it becomes very. You have to ultimately the engineering group would pay the operations group to get test time on uh, on their line, right? So it becomes like you're stopping the line for let's say like four hours that we want to test something. So it's it's very expensive, and ultimately, if you're able to, uh, I guess gather the data you need. To create that model, which also is, uh, I guess I'm not 100% sure how accurate the model is going to be, but the mm-hmm. opportunity that I see is being able to do those tests fairly reliably or to some degree of predictability, I guess, right, yeah. uh, or certainty, so that you could shorten that online test, right? Because if I'm booking, let's say, like an eight-hour time frame, I'm testing from scratch, right? Like I'm just yep. running tests, so if I can do a test on my quote-unquote digital twin and only run a test of like, let's say, two, three hours, it costs me a lot less of downtime to do it. So that's where I, I see the opportunity. I don't think yeah. it's, you know, I had conversations with someone thinking that we can simulate a palletizer, or like a case packer, and I, I think it was like a bit kind of like vague where the opportunity lies. But for me, that's like the kind of, you know, very expensive line, high-speed yeah. process. It's, it's very difficult to do it without having like a software simulation and there's well, a lot of yeah
0: i i would say i, I think that, that that's a really good application um so I, I think that you could absolutely do it like that i think r and d and new tests i think that those are really good examples of what can be done and then i would say beyond that if you're looking for machine machine or line optimizations right so maybe maybe what we're running well but we need to go be able to change a couple of different ways. So if I've got a four pack of something and want to run a six pack and a, and a 24 pack and, and kind of like all of these things, if I want to go through the process of doing that, I think those are our prime examples of, hey, can we physically do this? These are the things that I'm looking to change what happens. And then maybe it's a, Hey, I feel like we need to run faster. So what if I go make a couple of these changes to the line? Like, will it physically work because it's a one-to-one simulation? And then to that simulation, I think that there are a number of different opportunities and ways that, that you can go run the simulation, right? Like you could go run a, Hey, I've got a case packer. Maybe these are the dimensions and like, just assume that everything works. Right. And, and then I think that you could get it as, as intricate as building your exact case packer. Uh, if it's completely custom, like I want to build my exact case packer down to the exact specifications with the exact controller and all of this stuff to see what happens when I run it on mine. I think again, all of those are possible. They're just different levels of simulation at wildly varying cost price points. And for, If you're running slow in R and D and you want to make sure that it physically works, that's different. Then my my other option is a ten million dollar test line that I need to go take down fifty times a year, like once a week, to go run tests on new things. Right? Like in that instance, go spend a million dollars or whatever it costs on a really good simulation and go let your engineers run it whatever they want, however they want. You're, You're going to print money when you're still able to go run your line as a normal line
1: right yeah that's that's my thought exactly um last item reshoring are you are you, are you thinking that we're going to see more reshoring in 2023 so we had a good conversation last year with uh mm-hmm. harry moser right Yep. um who i think like really brought this topic home what are your thoughts uh in
0: 2023 i I'm hopeful, right? So I, I suppose reshoring means more jobs. Reshoring means more opportunities for us. So I, I am hopeful jobs we can't that fill. automation opportunities. But no, <laughs> I, I think I think that that it, it it means more jobs. It means more opportunities. It means it means more of that. So I am hopeful that we will see more reshoring or near nearshoring. But I also think that I, I guess well, let me rephrase. I, I feel confident we will have some more reshoring and nearshoring. As t- if we see 10 or 100x what it's been the last three years, probably not. I think many facilities who had a crunch during the pandemic were looking to get out of China the last couple of years have made decisions. And those decisions, to some extent, will be more more facilities in the U.S. and near the U.S., but probably not all of them. So I think that we will continue to see more nearshoring and more reshoring. I don't think that there's going to be a huge surge of saying, okay, suddenly we have 500 facilities in each state and we need to go suddenly fill and automate these. Like that I don't particularly see. That, I mean, we honestly could not handle the demand for. So I am hopeful that we'll see more as to how much more we see. I think we're probably going to generally continue the the trend and I think Harry and, oh goodness, I think it's the reshoring initiative. I think there are a bunch of groups that do some really good work there. And I am hopeful that we can continue down that path. How about you, Vlad? Do you think we're, we're going to go suddenly see a huge spike?
1: I, I doubt we're going to see a huge spike. Uh, the conversations I've been having were around, you know, the cost of containers went back down. I think it, uh, it was around 3, 4K at some point. Then it went mm-hmm. all the way up to 20K. Again, from what I've heard, and now it's back to, you know, like six to seven or so range. So I guess the manufacturers out of China are becoming more competitive once again. So I'm, I don't know, I I guess like I'm not sure. I Same as you, I really hope that that's the trajectory we are on, which is to bring more manufacturers back to the US. But I think that there's a lot of variables, right? Like we, again, we cannot find the people. We cannot uh, pay really good rates. Um, and so it becomes increasingly more difficult from that standpoint. So I I doubt, you know, I was very optimistic last year because I think yep. we were on a very upwards trajectory. But now that we're going into this quote unquote recession, I am becoming a lot less optimistic on that side. So I, I just think there's too many challenges. I think we can't find the right professionals. I think we, we're struggling to find even basic maintenance people, right, to be able to run these facilities. So I'm, I'm like I said, very hopeful, but I'm not, I'm, I just don't see it, I, I guess, at this stage.
0: Absolutely. Again, again, I think that we will continue to see more of it. I think that most of the reshoring, nearshoring that we see now is the result of the pandemic over the last couple of years. I just don't think that we're going to see a huge uptick I think that we will see. Uh, I'm hoping that we continue to see more of that, uh, more of those silicon, more of those chips facilities um, that have been in the news uh, out in Arizona. I think I've seen some in California, some in some in New York, right? I think I, I hope we bring some critical manufacturing back to the U.S. Um, I, I think that that's very good. Um, and generally speaking, I think that it's good having more manufacturing opportunities throughout the entirety of North America. Uh, fairly recently, I've seen a couple of facilities uh, fail. There was a, I think it was a Rivian facility that got nixed in Georgia because the uh, because the people didn't want it there and a judge ruled against it. And I saw another fairly major facility uh, get nixed because the, the people didn't want that facility close to them. So I think Why we, do we also- Why did they not
1: want it there? Why would you not want it?
0: Uh, I think that they felt like they were a small town and they didn't want more people in their community. uh, Basically. I I think that that was the the internet article that that I read. Right. So I I think that we will also have to fight against the, Hey, I don't want many. Like I want more jobs, but I don't want manufacturing in my area. So it's a double-edged sword. We will see where that goes. I hope the next time we have this conversation, about nearshoring, reshoring in six months or a year, it will be a much more positive, hey, we were wrong. Look at all of these other opportunities that we have found. Uh, any other thoughts, Vlad, But before we wrap
1: up? Well, I was going to ask you, you know, speaking of opportunities, uh, what are you working on? What are we working on? Could you give us maybe a bit of a pitch of the sponsor that we currently have listed at the top of this, uh, this clip, which is Profit by Design?
0: Absolutely, Vlad. So I'd like everyone to know that before we started this, Vlad specifically said, "Hey, we're not going to go have an ad read in the middle, right?" Uh, but no. Uh, so, so everyone, if you guys have not heard, Vlad and I are working on a on a process called Profit by Design. Our, our outline is is fairly simple, right? It's a three day workshop where we work with the people at your facility to, to basically go unlock a bunch of that business potential, not unlike what we what we have discussed. The, the basic premise. Is that Vlad and I have both worked with a bunch of groups over the years, and we go, we do some projects, and the projects that some of the projects that we've done that are the most profitable are really big pains for the operators. And as we go looking to see how much those cost the business, th- those are big dollars uh, within the business. So a really good example of this on a project that I I have been working on. Uh, for the for, for the past while, is, is I worked with a fairly large uh, food and beverage manufacturer, um, I was having a, an almost offhanded conversation with one of their maintenance managers. And, and the comment was, hey, you know, you know, what one of the biggest issues that we have that cost us, you know, 20 to 60 minutes every single time we have to go fix a machine is the freaking electrical drawings, right? So sometimes we'll have stacks of electrical drawings printed on paper um, that are by the machines, but if they're not there or we can't find them, then we've got to go online in order to go find them and no one knows where, where this file structure is, right? So it did a little bit of, of calculation and basically it cost them about two to 5% uh, conservatively of their downtime. So about $10 million a year they cost with just their maintenance and electricians going to find the electrical and other drawings of the machines that exist. And I'm like, man, this is ridiculous. So we are going through a process, uh, which is probably a couple hundred thousand dollars as as part of a larger process of taking the electrical drawings that they already have digitized and going and putting them on QR codes in a system that that we are implementing uh, otherwise. And they're just going to be able to take their phone scan the qr code pop up the electrical drawing and probably save 20 to 60 minutes every single time they've got to go troubleshoot a machine uh so That's that weird. that is an example yeah so so that that is an example of one of those big pain in the butt costs lots of money for a fairly large organization, but no one was able to connect the monetary pain to the physical pain of the folks in the workforce. And, and those are the sort of projects that Vlad and I are looking to uh, to go help solve while we go through Profit by Design. Uh, again, it's it's a three-day course. We're gonna go through a process mapping exercise. We're gonna talk with people who understand how much uh, all of these things cost. And, and our goal is to have 10 to 30 of these projects To be able to go showcase uh to ownership leadership of your facility and then if you would like our help going and continuing to implement on these we are happy to go help on the solutions as well if you guys have any questions you guys can check out profitbydesign.io that's profit the letter x design.io we'll go drop kind of all that information in there this example and about half a dozen other examples are on the website you guys can see what those project outlines look like and Generally speaking, we're we're looking to go help people because we think if we can help people, we're gonna make the jobs of, of the people on the floor easier. You guys are gonna be reta- you guys are going to be able to retain those good employees, train good employees, and and it, we are always looking to help make organizations more competitive. Uh, so that that is kind of the main thing Vlad and I are looking to do. I have convinced Vlad to. Leave his basement. He may or may not be dragging that wall of tech tech behind him. Uh so call now if you would like to see Vlad in person. Uh yes, and then, then maybe some some flashing call now sign uh would would be good uh at this point, Vlad. But uh, but no, we, we are
1: excited to uh, to do that. Uh to maybe close off the episode, Dave, I invite anyone who's been listening slash watching us on LinkedIn and or YouTube. Uh, To let us know, again, if you like this type of format, this is something that me and Dave have debated for a while uh, of doing. So this is sort of like a recap of the conversations we had over the month and sort of giving our own thoughts on uh, similar topics or the flavor of the month. So if you enjoy this type of content, make sure to leave us a comment either on LinkedIn, YouTube. You can always reach us through the same platforms. You can also find us on Manufacturing live, where you will find all the episodes, all the conversations with various guests, the one that we've just mentioned, as well as for the last two years. So uh, again, to close us off, if you want to like us on any of the platforms, so we are available on most, if not all podcasting platforms, the most popular being Apple, Google, and uh, Spotify podcasts. So we always appreciate your comments. We read all of them and you will also see all the show notes both on the website as well as any of those platforms. If you want to check out some of the books, some of the, um, I want to say the topics we talk about, we do link back to the content. So If you're driving, if you're at the gym, if you're doing something other than watching us on LinkedIn, that's where you can find us. Appreciate everything. Appreciate you, Dave. Thank you for taking the time out of your Friday to chat with me and the guests that we have had both on LinkedIn and YouTube. Last thoughts?
0: No, I think this is amazing. We should let you close more often. Thank you, everyone. We'll see everyone on Wednesday talking about ITOT convergence.